Hi, and welcome to the Christian Fundamentals Foundations course. As we journey through these lessons together, my hope is that your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ will find meaningful expression and lead you on to maturity and fruitfulness in your walk with Him. I trust that this lesson will guide and encourage your heart. Tonight, we are going to be looking into the next section of the Foundations course series, and we're going to start looking at the doctrine of baptisms. We're on Lesson 5 already. Hard to believe, almost for me, that we're already on Lesson 5. It feels like we're only still building up steam and momentum here. But really, what tonight's lesson is all about, for me, is to lay a foundation from which we explain and understand baptisms and how they pertain to the life of the believer. It's to define baptism. It's so that when we use the word baptism, we all have the same understanding. I like to just, it's, it's my nature, I guess. I like when I teach on a subject to, to lay a good, do, to do good groundwork so that when we teach in a particular direction, we're all kind of rowing together. We're all in the same heart and the same mind. And really, that's what this lesson tonight is all about, is to define baptism and the various kinds of baptism, because actually the Bible talks about various baptisms. So without further ado, let's get into this definition. And the word baptized is derived from the Greek word baptisma, which means washing. So it comes with the idea of cleansing, of something that is dirty or was dirty being washed clean. And I think of the, 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 the scripture in Isaiah for, where Jesus says, Come, or God says to him, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, behold, I will wash them white as snow. And really, even in that, we have this idea of what, of what baptism symbolizes in terms of a cleansing, in terms of something new. Now, underneath the English word baptize in the New Testament uh, are various forms of the Greek word baptizo, all coming from the root Greek word, which is bapto, which means to dip. You, anybody who's watched my big fat Greek wedding understands the significance of the root Greek word. Uh, and being son to, son to a Greek man, it has extra significance. But really what they're trying to do there is they're trying to draw right down into the etymology, the, the, the breakdown of the word and what it really means. And it's good for us to understand also that baptism is not an English word. It's not sort of derived from Latin or French origins so like so much of our, our English language is. But it is derived from, it, it's a transliteration. There is no equal word in English to describe the word baptize. And so we need to understand what it really means in Greek. Now... It's not consistent with New Testament Scripture that the word baptizo, in any of its forms, in any of the ways that it's used in the New Testament, could have a connotation of pouring or sprinkling. It just doesn't mean that. Now, the, we'll look at, let's just look to, to, to sort of drive the point in. Uh, proskusis, I please forgive my Greek here is the word for pouring, and that is used in Hebrews 11.28. In fact, in the, New, in the King James, it's, it's translated as sprinkling. We also have the Greek word, which is bantismos, which means sprinkling. And I give you various Bible references there. I'm, for, for, I'm not going to go into all of them, because the issue is not so much what those particular verses say, but just to understand that 
the Greek language has a word for sprinkling, it has a word for pouring, and it uses those relevant words in the, in the necessary context. But Bible authors used baptizo, the word that we have for baptize, for a literal dipping or submerging or washing, and in some cases to mean to place into or to be identified with something. So really the point that I'm trying to make here is this. When we read the Bible and what the Bible says about the act of baptism, it doesn't give us any kind of framework for a different practice apart from submersion into water. Now, as I'm laying foundations, that already becomes very controversial because many of us may come from traditional church backgrounds. Many of us have many different ideas on what baptism is. And I will, by the way, cover this probably again and, and dig deeper into this next week when we actually do baptism in water. But what I'm really wanting to understand right now is to understand baptism means to submerge, to wash completely, not just to sprinkle, not just to pour water on. Now, it's interesting to note that in the, in the Vidahi, the, the book that some of the writings of the apostles for, for, uh, that, that came, you know, that they're not part of the canon of Scripture, but they come from the life and functioning of early church. They do write in there that in certain exceptional circumstances where water is not available, there's no dam, there's no river or pool or ocean or anything where people can be baptized, they do make an exception that pouring can be done. But really that is an exception. It's not, it's not the norm. And, and truthfully, we just don't see that at all in Scripture. So while I'm not going to be knocking different practices, and again, I, I will say this next week, I'll say it again, I do not... Uh, second guess the intentions or the practices of others who, who perform or practice baptism in a different way from what I'm going to teach. I, I believe there is significance in it. I believe there is sincerity of heart in it. What I'm going to be focusing on is what I see in the Bible, is what Scripture teaches us. First of all, about understanding baptism and thereafter and its practices. But really, when we understand the idea of, of washing, submersion, being completely engulfed in something new and coming up out of it, we understand that baptism means a literal dipping and also implies a work of transition and inward transformation. Now here I'm going to harken back a little bit to what we shared not long ago on the subject of repentance. And what I said about repentance was there's two parts to repentance. The one is coming out of something and the one is going into something new. I turn away from something, but not to nothing. I turn away from something in order to pursue or go in a new direction. And so baptism, it, 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 it's symbolic. These things all work together symbolically. It implies a work of transition, of a cleansing and a washing, and a doing away with the old, and an emerging of something new. Now, when we read Hebrews 6, verse 1 and 2, which outlines the foundational doctrines that this course is based on. It's easy to note, uh, it, it's important to note that when it talks about the foundational doctrines, it speaks about repentance from dead works, which we've covered, faith toward God, which we've covered, and then doctrine of baptisms, not the doctrine of, of, of being baptized. And so it's good to know that there are four different kinds of baptisms that are referred to in the New Testament. I found that very interesting when I heard that for the first time because my understanding of baptism always had to do with water. 
But there's actually four different kinds of baptismal experiences in the life of the believer that we see in the New Testament. And I'm going to be focusing on those tonight so that we get an understanding of, of what this means. Now that we understand the concept or the definition of baptism, let's look at what Scripture says concerning the different kinds of baptisms and how that definition works itself out in each one of them. The first example we have comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it speaks about being baptized into one body. So 1 Corinthians 12, from verse 12 to 14, says this, For as the body is one, speaking about the body of Christ, and has, oh, sorry, speaking about your physical body, as your physical body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So he's using a, a natural body as an example, and if you follow that train of thought right through the chapter, he goes on into more detail about it, that each part of the body, each member has its own role and function. But here he's talking about the body of Christ that has many members, many individual, clearly identifiable members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body in Christ. Why? For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And so Paul uses the, 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 the physical body uh, and the different attributes and the different parts and roles and functions, but yet it being one body as the analogy for the body of Christ. So now, this idea of being baptized into one body deals with our position in the body of Christ. Some would say that this, this association means that we've become part of or immersed into this new body. So there's where the idea of baptized into one body. We become immersed into the family that is born from above, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago. It's, and as we looked in the definition of baptism, we also saw that it was used as a term to mean to be placed in or to be identified with. So the baptism into one body means that we've been baptized into the body of Christ, this, the church of Jesus Christ, the, the body of his followers. And it refers to the work of transition and transformation from our state of spiritual death apart from Christ to our state of spiritual life in Christ. Now, different people view this how, when and how this happens slightly differently. Some would say when we get baptized in water, we become part of the family of God. And thereby, it, this baptism into one body is the result of the baptism in water. Others would, would argue against that, saying, well, that's, that's a strong argument for infant baptism, because then it means you need to be baptized as an infant to become a part of this body and be baptized into this one body. They would say being baptized into the body of Christ is what happens when we put our faith in Jesus, we receive Him as our Lord and Savior, and we, His Spirit comes to live within us. We receive the indwelling presence of the Spirit that makes us members and parts of the body of Christ, brings us into fellowship with the body of Christ. So that's really the first kind of baptism. Uh, if you want to sort of put them in, a, in some kind of chronological order that we would experience as, as believers would be this baptism into one body where God immerses us in this group that we belong to that is bigger than ourselves but is united and put together by His presence and by those who are made in His new recreated image. We then move on to baptism in water, which is probably the baptism most of us are most familiar with. 
Now we see baptism in it as an integral part of John the Baptist's ministry. Uh, the Baptist was not his surname or his title. He's generally known as John the Baptizer. He was a guy called John who walked around in some seriously trendy clothes, had ate funny food, and uh, really, Jesus has some amazing things to say about John the Baptist. He says, no one, there's no one greater than he that is born of woman. But yet, you and I, those of us in the kingdom of God, will be greater than he because we'll have the Spirit of God living within us. What an incredible thing to say. But now we see that John practiced this ministry of baptism in the Bible, and his baptism was called the baptism of repentance. And it resembled a washing away of sin. And here we see the idea, in again, of repentance in the turning away and the rejection of something, the admission of something or the ownership of sin and the rejection of it and being cleansed from that in order to prepare the hearts of the people for their Messiah. And there we see the other side of it, turning and facing in a completely new direction with hearts that are open and expectant. Matthew 3 verse 3 says this about him, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. And that was the focus and the emphasis of John the Baptist's ministry. Thousands of people came from Jerusalem, from the cities, to be baptized by him in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So he was God's prophet, sent to the people, saying, the promised Messiah, and he, you know, according to the scriptures, is coming. And this is a baptism of repentance to prepare our hearts for his imminent arrival. And he was recognized as a prophet. And many went to him and recognized and submitted to his ministry and were baptized. Not all of that who did, however, recognized that Jesus is the Messiah that John was speaking of. But we basically see the point that I'm making is that John's baptism was to make preparation for Jesus. And it was the transition through repentance into a state of expectancy and openness for the, for, for the Messiah and that the followers rec would recognize him. It was to make a way for the bridegroom and to present him to the people. You could, you know, when you, you know, here, let me give you an example. Last week, Siobhan ministered to us and he did an outstanding job. I really, he did, he, he was very moving and he shared so beautifully last week. But I realized, I said to you all that Siobhan is going to be ministering to you last week. And I got up and I let him sit down and I went to go sit down in my chair over there. And he said, Hi, um, looking at a screen of people, some of whom are very unfamiliar to him. And he said, for those of you who don't know me, and I went, oh my goodness, Michael. Certainly, did. I didn't introduce him. I didn't explain who he was. I gave no introduction. I'd, I was a lousy John the Baptist. I was, and so I apologized to him afterwards. But it would have been, wouldn't it have been so much better if I'd explained to you who this young man was, why it was that he was coming to share with you, it would have set the tone for him and laid a platform for him. It would have been the right thing to do. So nonetheless, this is what John the Baptist was doing for Jesus. And we see that Jesus not only affirmed and accepted John's ministry, but he himself submitted to John's ministry and came to be baptized in order to, as Jesus said, fulfill all righteousness. And here we read the account of it from Matthew chapter 3, which says this, from verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee, to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. 
But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, John's baptism, we know, as we've said, was a baptism of repentance. Jesus didn't need to repent of anything, did he? So why on earth was Jesus being baptized by John? The truth is that by submitting to the baptism of John, Jesus was publicly sealing his approval of John's ministry and his message. He also was submitting to God's prophet on the earth. At that stage, John the Baptist was the prophet of God coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, let me just help you think through some of the story here. Jesus is born in a major. Some wise guys come and they affirm that this is the promised Messiah. Some shepherds come and they worship him. He gets some fancy gifts that pay for his college education and rabbinical school. And basically, he grows up in the life of a car, as, a, as a carpenter's son, learning how to make yokes and doing tables and chairs and all that kind of stuff in his father's business, as well as going, as every Jewish boy does, going through his rabbinical teaching and his education. Well, not rabbinical, his Jewish teaching and education. At the age of 12, his parents lose him in Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They can't find him. Three days later, eventually, they go back to find out what has happened to their son. And his mother says, where have you been? She finds him in the temple asking questions with the, the, the priests. Now, that's significant because in rabbinical teaching, they test you not on how well you can answer questions, but they test you on the questions that you ask. How are you thinking and how are you able to ask a question that is open-ended and that can have that is nuanced and those sorts of things. So we see Jesus at 12, 12 years old, astonishing the priests. They, they're marveling at his wisdom. And then his mother says to him, what have you done to us? We've been looking for you for three days. And Jesus, as a typical 12-year-old, no doubt, says, Mom, don't you know I must be about my father's business? And so we have this picture of Jesus as 12 years old, having a clear idea or a part of an idea of who he is and what he's called to do. But the Bible only has two verses in the entire Bible concerning Jesus' life from that moment at 12 years old until 30 years old when he starts his public ministry and starts calling his disciples. The only two verses in the Bible say this. The one is, from that point on, he remained subject to his parents. In other words, in subjection to them. And the other one is that he grew in favor with God and with man. So in eight, in the, for the next 18 years of Jesus' life, we don't see any ministry. We don't see any miracles. We don't see any signs, wonders, healings, nothing. Until this event happens. And Jesus comes to the prophet who is sent to reveal to the people this one. And he says to him, now is time for me to be baptized by you to fulfill all righteousness. And we see that Jesus' act of submission and humility in that moment 
brought the approval and the affirmation of God and the release of the Holy Spirit upon him. You see, from that moment on, after that experience of Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested from the de by the devil for 40 days and nights. He, he fasted. He came out of that encounter, out of that test, without yielding. So in other words, victorious over the enemy. And from that point on, his earthly ministry, accompanied with signs and wonders, began. So in being baptized, Jesus not only received the Father's approval, but he also sets a strong example for you and I to follow, to partake of his righteousness in our lives. Baptism is an integral part of the Christian faith and of the Christian new birth. And Jesus ultimately, so Jesus followed the same pattern that John the Baptist did, for those who would be his disciples in terms of baptism. We see in Matthew 28, which is now Jesus giving the Great Commission. He's, he's, now, paid the, he's now died on the cross, he's risen again, he's now commissioning his disciples, and he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we see the disciples of Jesus, not only his disciples, but all disciples, you and me as well, identify with the finished work of his life, death, and resurrection through the act of baptism. And I'll go into more detail on that next week. But baptism is the identification of that, and also it's a public declaration of our faith in him and what has taken place in our hearts. It's the symbol or confession of those who acknowledge Him as Messiah and refers to the work of transition and transformation, which I've already spoken about. So like I said, we're going to cover that lesson in greater detail next week when we're going to look deeper into water baptism. The third kind of baptism that is spoken of in the Bible is baptism in the Holy Spirit. I will, in that lesson, give deeper understanding of the difference between the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ or the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that we receive when we put our faith in Jesus and we are born again as new creations and God makes His home inside our heart and we have the indwelling presence of God which manifests and produces the fruit of the Spirit or the evidence of God's presence in our lives. It's the seal of our salvation and it is the means through which we communicate with God and He communicates with us and His Word comes alive. That is, belongs to everyone who is a believer and has the experience of the, being born again. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a different and a separate experience. It is the moment where we don't just receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, but the infilling presence of the Holy Spirit. And here's why baptism is such an apt word for this and why it is used. It's because this, it's this overwhelming you you are submerged in or under the power of the holy spirit and the purpose of the baptism of the holy spirit is to empower believers for works of service it's not just to help us do extraordinary things and we'll look at the gifts of the holy spirit working of miracles and tongues and prophecies and healings and all these things but it's also to enable us to be extraordinary people acts 1 verse 8 says this jesus before his ascension Speaking to his disciples, he said, But you shall receive power. The word there is dynami. Same Greek word we get dynamite from. It's not a small thing. It's not just a sweet little voice. Gentle Jesus. 
meek and mild. Power. Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be, in other words, therefore empowered to be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit refers to the work of transition and transformation from our limited human abilities to divine empowerment, bringing with it supernatural abilities. It has to do with the things that only God can do, but that God desires to do through His vessels, you and me. So, for example, one of the gifts of the Spirit is a word of knowledge, where God would, would, through one person, speak a word into another person's life to say, you went through this experience, or this happened, and God is speaking to you now. And just that word of saying, there is no possible way that you could have known that unless God revealed that to you, opens somebody's heart to receive the, the, the message of the gospel that they may come into the kingdom. That is supernatural stuff. That is God in, at, at work in supernatural ways that comes through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, like, and once again, more will be taught, not next week, but the following week on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm actually going to be talking, we're going to have two lessons on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The one focusing on the, the mechanics of it or the, what it is and what it means and how it looks and how it manifests. And the next lesson we'll be talking specifically about um, praying in other tongues which scripturally is the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I've included a quote here that Pastor Andreas has often made, where he says that we cannot function on the level that God expects us to in this world without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I love how Paul writes to the Corinthian church. So when Paul writes his first letter to the Corinthians, this is a church that is flowing mightily in the gifts of the Spirit, but they're making such a mess of it. They're all competing. They're all jockeying for position. They're all each trying to outperform the other one. And they're actually doing more harm than good. And Paul writes and he says to them, you are behaving like mere men. In other words, just like on a human level, whereas you have this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this incredible experience that has empowered you and caused all these gifts to come upon you, and yet you're still behaving like mere men. So in other words, the baptism of the Holy Spirit enables us to walk in a spirit-empowered way um, that enables God to work through us with miraculous signs and wonders following. Like I said, we'll get onto that more in a couple of weeks' time. The last kind of baptism that we find referred to in the Scriptures is called the baptism of fire or the baptism of sufferings. And the baptism of sufferings refers to Christ's work of purification in our lives. So if you think of, of gold, the gold needs to be refined, but it can't, it can't be refined except by going through the fire. And what the fire does is it doesn't reveal the gold, but fire reveals the impurities in the gold. You know, there's an old expression that they say that people are like tea bags. If you want to know what they're full of, just put them in hot water. And it will it'll all come out. And, you know, when we're under pressure, when we're under stress, we see what is truly in our hearts. And part of this is this baptism of sufferings. Now, again, we're going to look at what John says, John the Baptist says concerning, uh, concerning this. In Matthew 3, 11 to 12, 
he's talking to the people and he says that I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. So he goes on from this idea of baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire straight on to, to what that means, that his winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, uh, Miles Monroe years ago made an analogy of the maker of the makers of Roman swords. You know, uh, for the Roman army, your sword was your life. If your sword failed or your sword was faulty, you were a dead man. Because uh, that's, your, that's your, your weapon in battle. And those who were forging swords would put their names on it. And they would take that sword, that piece of steel. So, so if that blade failed, they knew who to go back to, in other words. That, if that blade failed, then of course the death of a soldier, that would cost the death of the sword maker. And so they would put that sword into the fire, and they would take it out, and they would look at the steel, and they would look for the impurities, and they would beat them out and beat them out. And then they would quench that blade. And again, into the fire, beat out impurities. Back into the fire, beat out the impurities, until eventually, they just, like I said, they quench the blade, it is now ready, and then they put their name on it. Folks, you and I are in God's army. And God uses the heat of the world around us, of persecution, of trials, and of troubles, to reveal to us the impurities that are in our heart. And by His grace, He helps us deal with them. And in so doing, He grafts His name into our hearts. He chisels His name into us and says that, this is my sword. This is my child. They bear my identity and I will vouch for them. This is the purpose of the baptism of fire. It's the uncomfortable. It's the hard things. But those things... Now, I want to say this. Hard times do not necessarily develop our character. Difficulties do not necessarily develop our character. Our attitude in hard times determines whether or not our character will be developed our attitude in the difficulty or the trial determines whether or not our, our, our character will be developed. Let me just read you a scripture that's not in there. Uh, and I'm giving a little extra time to this because I have not given a lesson to the baptism of fire. But there's this verse in the book of James where it says, James 1 from verse 2, Brethren, count it joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That word testing I mean, it, it, it's, it's seeing what you're full of. What is your faith really made of? But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete. Now, let's just pause for a second here. In our foundational scripture, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith, which we're talking about here. This word perfection means wholeness, maturity. And so James here is saying, through trials and hard times, let the patience have its perfect work that we may be perfect or whole and complete, mature, lacking nothing. You understand? So this role, 
that, that trials and hard times plays in our lives is to reveal to us what is in our hearts. Not to God. God knows what's there. problem is we don't. And this is a baptism that puts us and submerges us into difficult situations. God does, it's not that God sends them, but He allows us to endure them and go through them. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And He sets a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So in the midst of the situations, God is with us. Jesus even said, in this world you will have tribulation. Well, that's encouraging. But then he says, be of good cheer. Really? Because I am with you and I have overcome the world. So we have this assurance of Jesus' presence in us and with us through trials and difficult things. Etching his name on us. Purifying our hearts, our attitudes, our motives through what we see and what comes to the surface in the difficult times. But Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 3 and says to him, You must therefore endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Um, and I, as I've said in these notes here, I'm not going to go deep into the baptism of, of sufferings or the baptism of fire. I think I've given you some good food for thought already concerning the subject and what God desires to do in and through it. But really, just in summary, what we've covered tonight is defining what the Bible means when it uses the word baptism or baptize, when you see that in your Bible, how that affects and works itself out in four different ways, our baptism into one body, baptism in water as an emblem of our faith in Jesus Christ and our identification with His death, burial and resurrection in newness of life, we looked at the baptism or the immersion in the Holy Spirit where He comes upon us and empowers us by His Spirit for Christian works. And finally, the baptism of fire where we go through hard times and through those hard times with the leading and grace of Jesus, purification takes place in our hearts and our faith is refined. So the personal application really on this one is that it's important to understand the purpose uh, of baptisms in the life of a believer and to obey God's word concerning their application. This to me is actually quite a big one because I'm really quite taken aback sometimes how people consider baptism, which is a command of Jesus Christ for everyone who wants to be His disciple. In fact, it's the first command. Believe and be baptized. Um, and and also the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which God calls a good gift. How many people are reluctant to enter into and to follow through in obedience? So really the personal application here is to understand the significance of baptism, the importance thereof, so that we can obey and follow through as Jesus desires. As we cooperate with His Holy Spirit in this regard, our lives have the opportunity of being transformed into the image and likeness of Christ, like I said He's etching His name and His identity into your and my heart so that we resemble Him more and more and more. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.